This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Ernie Yells, the Big Easy's one of the most decorated players in golf history with 75 professional wins, including four major championships. But we went to Dublin, Ohio in 2011, where he reflected on the biggest win of his career. That was the, one of the toughest victories ever. You know, it took 90 holes, but um, that was very, very important because if I, if I didn't win that tournament, you know, things could have really turned out a lot different. And the close calls along the way. That year really hurt me uh, as bad as anything I've, I've ever experienced on the golf course. Plus, the native South African opened up on the impact the late Nelson Mandela had on his home country. Everybody was so scared uh, of the future. And Nelson Mandela had the vision. He had the vision for, for his whole life that we could live as a country together. And talk candidly about his memorable rivalry with Tiger Woods. I admire the guy, but I, you know, I wasn't going to stand back for, uh, for him. You know, I wanted to win. Els now plays on the Champions Tour, but our conversation began with his passion for designing golf courses all over the world. What do you really enjoy about designing golf courses? From an early age, I, um, I was always intrigued by how do you take a piece of land and you know, create something you know, where people can play golf on for a very long time. Um, you know, I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, and uh, we played on all traditional like golf courses. And I just always, I was always fascinated about um, how do they actually uh, get this done? How do you create uh, uh, something lasting for a, for a long time? And uh, um, really, I think way back in, I was still in my twenties when I actually uh, got into partnership with Jack Nicklaus, who's probably the greatest designer of, of the modern time. And uh, really learned a lot from him and some of his designers and uh, got lucky and and doing some golf courses in South Africa off the bat. Um, actually did the uh, collaboration with uh, Michael Pallott in uh, Washington DC, just outside DC, a place called um, uh, Whiskey Creek. And uh, kind of got my feet wet there a little bit and saw how these guys uh, get things done, how the shapers do things. So uh, uh, just kind of always been a kind of interested in that. What did you learn from Jack Nicholas about designing golf courses? Well, he's, um, he very much, the way he played, that's how he approaches his design uh, business. He's, uh, so? he's very meticulous. He, um, he's, got a, he's got a strategy that he, that he follows. Um, um, and his earlier designs, um, he really designed the courses the way he played. You know, there's a, uh, there's a lot of accuracy. In his second shots, he had a lot of accuracy um, in mind. Uh, fairways were pretty wide and, and greens were on angles, most of them on left to right shots. And as you well know, Jack always played a high left to right shot. So uh, um, love that, but his, his strategy is, is wonderful and his routings uh, really make sense. Um, uh, and I think that's how he, he really created a lasting uh, impression. And I understand your courses are more classical with a sort of modern flair. At least that was how it was described to me. What exactly does that mean? Well, I kind of uh, took a lot from, from Mr. Nicholas, from Jack, um, in the fact that I also, uh, I'm a pretty good iron player. Um, if there's a weakness in my game, it's, a, it's my driving. So I also like to have fairways uh, pretty wide. And we feel that uh, having that, our strategy is really the bunkering. And I don't like really high rough on my golf courses. I like the ball to, to be played 
uh, from, from any kind of a lie where you can actually have a go at the green or you know, play short of the green and, and let your short game take over from there. So we like to have wider fairways, strategically placed bunkers, and then also small greens on, a on angles uh, to, to really test the player off the tee. Um, he's got to get himself in the right position to have the easiest shot into the flag. So, um, you know, um, played obviously a lot of tournament golf and um, you need a plan, uh, a strategic plan, how you approach uh, each and every golf hole. And that's what I try and implement in our design. How about your most personally satisfying experience designing a course? Well, I would say the one in Johannesburg. Um, it's a golf course we designed quite a few years ago now. It's been open for play. Um, it's called Garden and Rust. The, the owners changed the name of, of, of the piece of land. My grandfather actually grew up on this piece of land. It was Who had a huge influence on your career. Exactly. My grandfather started our family playing golf. My father started from him. Um, and then obviously myself and my brother learned so much from my grandfather, brought us into the game. And he actually grew up on this piece of land just outside of Johannesburg. And so it will be that these developers bought this land and asked us to come and do the golf course, which, uh, which really uh, kind of gives you goose pimples, you know, it's, it's quite, quite, uh, quite amazing. How did the opportunity to create your own wine come about? Well, I, I'm not even from the wine region, my wife is, you know, and um, we met in Stellenbosch, uh, which is the wine region in South Africa, it's like our Napa Valley, uh, most beautiful village, you know, with mountains and stuff and a lot of wine farms. Um, and at the same time as we met, you know, a good friend of mine, Jean Engelbrecht, his family, they've been making wine for, for, for 80 years now. And, um, you know, actually on his farm was our first date. You know, we went for a barbecue and we drank some wine and so on and became really close friends. And as time will go, you know, and, and I think in 1999 we decided for some reason I like the Bordeaux. Uh, style wine um, so we made a wine we said okay why don't we just slap your name on a bottle of wine and, uh, and bottle some wine I said it's got to be good quality because um, you know you can only go with your name that far and if people find out that your product is not good they don't care if your name is whoever you know they're not going to buy it so we needed to have a good product and we only did I think only a thousand bottles um, was our first vintage, was in 1999. Uh, bottled it, uh, really got good reviews. You know, Wine Spectator gave us over 90 in our very first year, which was, oh, wow. which was great. All of a sudden we, were, we had the best, you know, red wine out of South Africa. And so it grew, you know, and um, bought a piece of land where we actually, we, we used to use these grapes in any case for our wines. The land became available, bought it, Put the winery up, and you know now we've got seven other different labels. So um, it's kind of a kind of fell into it, you know, with with Liesel and, and good friends. Uh, still not, still don't know much about wine. I know what I like and dislike, sure. and I got a great winemaker. So uh, it's really going well. How would you describe your level of involvement in the whole process? Well, I'm a golfer, you know, and um, you know my winemaker spent a lot of time in, in France, and that's why he knows so much about the Bordeaux blend. Um, but you, I, you've traveled the world enough, yeah. I would imagine, to know what you like. And well, exactly. Like. I, that's to where my extent goes, though. You know, I, I know what I like and not like. I'd like to, 
Um, we, we're now making a, a Cabernet, we're doing a Merlot, uh, we're doing the, the Bordeaux blend. We've got we get two Bordeaux blends, one with a five varietal and another one with six varietal. And we've actually come out with a Big Easy, which is also a blend. And they're all in different classes, you know, you've got the Ernie Els signature, which is the kind of the high-end, uh, uh, expensive wine, right down to the Big Easy, which is much more affordable, but they're all very drinkable. And um, I actually started to really fall in love with the Napa Valley uh, uh, type of uh, uh, grapes. Um, you know, it's a lot more smoother. Um, you can actually drink it, um, you know, it's ready to drink when they bottle it, you know, unlike some other wines. So we'd, we'd like to go that, that route a little bit more. And this is coming from somebody who literally knows nothing about wine, but, uh, you know, it seems like you have the premium, uh, other premium brands out there. I've interviewed athletic figures for this series before who have associations with wine. It seems like a somewhat crowded field, so how do you distinguish yourself uh, among the others? How challenging is that? The, the great thing about wine is um, the better everybody else's wines are, uh, you know, the, the better for everybody. Because then, you know, people will take you more seriously when an athlete or a personality puts their name to a product. You know, it's not, it's not just because of the name. It's actually there's, there's some, some substance to the product. And, um, you know, Drew Bledsoe, the, the quarterback, you know, he's into wine and he makes a, a wonderful wine. He actually came down to South Africa to our, to our winery. Oh, really? And, um, you know, to come and taste some wines and stuff. We, you know, we exchange wines and stuff and he makes an unbelievable wine, you know. Um, so, I mean, there's obviously Greg Norman, there's um, Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, there's so many personalities who have uh, put their names to, to wines, but I would like to say that I would say 80, 85% of them have really got uh, substance to their to their brands, and I think that's very important to keep the uh, to the level up. Once you know there's not a good product in there, people are not going to take you seriously. How about the most satisfying victory of your career? Oh, I mean, they're all very special, but uh, obviously the majors uh, define you more as a player and. You know, I would say the 94 US Open, you know, was a, was a battle. You know, three of us going out for a playoff. I mean, I had it won in, in regulation play and then I messed it up on the 18th hole and then messed it up again in the playoff. But somehow I got myself back into a Southern Death playoff. So that was the one of the toughest victories ever. You know, it took 90 holes. But um, that was very, very important because if I... If I didn't win that tournament, you know, things could have really turned out a lot different. You know, I was 24 at the time. You know, winning U.S. Open gives you a gave me a lifetime exemption on the European tour and 10-year exemption on the U.S. tour, which means a lot. You know, you talk about it meaning a lot. How quickly did your life change after that? The 94 U.S. Open victory at Oakmont. Well, obviously, professionally, it changes a lot because you get so many more opportunities to go and play and. Uh, people recognize you obviously you uh, become very you know at that age you're quite marketable so quite a lot of companies show interest and uh, want you to market their product so uh, that that from that perspective my whole life changed because now I wasn't uh, you know I wasn't after money anymore you know it was more uh, I'm set with financially now you know I can really go after my dreams um, so from that standpoint, it changed a lot. But as a person, 
um, you know, I was, I was so grounded with, with the friends that I have around me. You know, I've got friends who have, who have been lifelong friends. And, uh, you know, when you have friends like that, even with success, you don't change. You know, you go back home and you still do the same things with them. So from that perspective, I did not, I don't think I did change. One article read uh, that you, quote, graduated from a wonder kid on a free pass to heir apparent under a microscope. A lot of people might forget this is 1994 and just the worldwide uh, importance of that year to South Africa with Nelson Mandela being elected president that year, even amid everything going on at that time in South Africa, the significance of your victory in your native country would be what? Well, it was huge, you know. It's probably the first big, um, you know, major sporting event that a South African won, you know, on a worldwide stage for a while. Maybe since, um, you know, maybe maybe Gary Player, you know. Um, I'm not sure if anybody won a major since since Gary Player, you know. So it was big, you know, and especially at my age. Uh, and already people knew about me from when I was a 13-year-old boy, you know, going to San Diego and so on. So in that 10 years, you know, I was already under the microscope a little bit, you know, playing in amateur, big amateur events and so forth. And to win that major kind of probably validated me a little bit that, you know, kind of proved to the country, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a one, one-hit wonder. Um, and then obviously with uh, President Mandela becoming president, uh, I mean, the whole the whole world changed, you know, the whole of South Africa changed. We went from a, an apartheid, uh, you know, society into uh, the country that we are today, a democratic country. And that was the fight that Nelson Mandela had his whole life. You know, he was locked away for 27 years, comes out. Um, we as, as people in the Air Force, when I went to the Army, you know, the ANC was, was, we were, was regarded as our enemy. You know, in many in many ways, that you know, when a country goes one way, when it changes that changes that dramatically so quickly, you know, there's a lot of resentment still there. So, the whole country had to kind of uh, kind of uh, blend in into the new society, which was a major success. I don't think anybody could have done it the way. Nelson Mandela did You know, I wonder, I read an article that recalls a story that happened many uh, years later where there was a girl in South Africa who was black and she got her picture taken with you and then got another picture, uh, another individual picture taken with Tiger Woods and she runs back to her friends and she is most excited about the picture with you and you're obviously white and you know, it's telling because racial tensions at times have been high in South Africa, even if only in a small way. To what extent do you think your athletic success has helped improve race relations there? I think not only myself, but I think sport in South Africa has been such a positive uh, factor in, in the whole of uh, the rebuilding of South Africa. You know, if you look at, I mean, rugby is, is mainly a white uh, sport, or it used to be. You know, if you look at this, our Springbok side, South African side now, you know, we have people of color in the, in the side, not only just because they were put there because of the, the color of their skin, they're actually there because they, they've earned their place. Right. You know, for a long time, these guys were put in there because of, you know, the, the, the changes that were taking place. Now they're in there on merit. And that just shows you, I mean, it's taken almost a generation for us to get to where we are today, but back then, 
everybody was so scared uh, of the future. And Nelson Mandela had the vision. He had the vision for, for his whole life that we could live as a country together. Um, and um, I think sport has, has definitely helped. I know myself, you know, as a golfer, you know, I've always had black friends. You know, I, I used to practice with, with my black friends. Uh, you know, they, even the, the guys that used to caddy for me. I mean, I had a lifelong friend uh, called Mishak. You know, when I was a kid, I used to go off to school, go practice, and he'll help me. And then when I turned pro, he carried for me. You know, unfortunately, he passed away, you know, a couple of years ago. But I always had a, a good relationship with uh, the black people of South Africa. And I think uh, we've both uh, embraced each other. How about your most memorable experience from your meetings, your calls with Nelson Mandela? Uh, just unbelievable. I mean, every time, you know, um, I do something, you know, he'd, he'd call, you know, he'd find me somewhere. And I mean, I, once I won in Dubai and he, he found me in Dubai on my, really? in my hotel room. I mean, I don't know how he does these things, but he, he's unbelievable. Even President Mbeki, you know, uh, after Man President Mandela, he used to call me also. And, but with President Mandela, we had a great relationship. He knew me before I was married, before I had kids, and then, you know, we, he, we, we still speak. Um, now, after I've had kids, you know, he's more interested in, in my children than in, than in me. Always asks uh, how Ben is doing and how Samantha's doing. And um, I remember the, the time when Samantha met President Mandela. We were both on the same flight on, on our way to London. And uh, he saw me when I was sitting there and he said, I want to speak to you. So I went over. He only said hello to me. He said, where's your daughter? I want to meet your daughter. So, you know, he, he was a, he's a great man. And this just isn't any president. This is Nelson This is Mandela. President Mandela. You know, just the most special man ever, ever. Tiger Woods, your rivalry with him over the years, how, how would you describe it? Um, you know, he, he definitely dominated. I mean, unfortunately for me, you know, he did dominate our era, you know, that 10-year era. And, um, you know, he, he beat me a lot more often than I wanted to, to get my hands on him. But um, he was just, uh, just amazing, just absolutely amazing talent and, and the way he performed. I don't know, you know, I never played with Jack Nicklaus, but obviously they would have had a great rivalry. He was just... A little bit too good, you know, and it pains me to say that, but that's that's just a fact. Uh, but I did have some good, some good battles with him. I did beat him here and there. Um, but he, um, you know, I don't want to sound like sour grapes, but you know, playing against him in the United States, you know, gave him a little bit of a of a, uh, I wouldn't say upper hand, but he was a bit more comfortable than maybe than I was. Because of the fan support? Well, just because, you know, you're playing at home. Right. You know, I've got great support here, unbelievable support through the years, but at the end of the day, you know, you're playing at home and the other guy's not. So, you know, you just feel a bit more comfortable. And I, that played into his hands, but also the talent of the man is just amazing. The shots that he played and the, uh, the best closer I've ever seen in my life. But, but interestingly, when I was talking to David Ledbetter, he pointed out that uh, you know, sometimes, at least then, and he, your longtime swing coach would, uh, you would almost give him too much credit for his talent, and you wouldn't give yourself enough credit for your own talent. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but um, 
that didn't take anything away from my competitiveness when I got back onto the golf course. You know, I, I admire the guy, but I, you know, I wasn't going to stand back for, uh, for him. You know, I wanted to win. Uh, but I just, you know, sometimes, you know, professional athletes, you know, you, it's almost like they, they've admitted it, but they won't say it, you know. Um, you know, and a lot of guys just, you know, you could not quite, uh, quite beat the guy at, at times. To what extent would you motivate one another? Well, he did, um, I knew he's got, res I know he's got respect for me, you know, I knew that from a, from way back, you know, um, back in the, in the early 90s, you know, when he was still a youngster and used to play in professional tournaments, he'd, he'd seek me out, you know, and come and talk to me. Right. So, uh, yeah, to get some advice and um, I guess I was a nice guy, you know, he could approach me and uh, he felt comfortable with me and, you know, we would talk and, um, you know, we played together in, in some tournaments early on when he was an amateur and then in 1996, um, you know, I finished second to Tom Lehman and I messed up a little bit on 16 and 18. I bogeyed those holes, otherwise I could have been in the playoff. And I was waiting for Tom to finish the 18th. I was sitting in that locker room, you know, and Tiger approached me again. And I was a little upset because of my finish. Um, but I said, no, nah, come, come sit down and, you know, what, what do you want to talk about? And he actually wanted to know if he was good enough to turn pro. You know, in, in 1996, and um, you know, we had a great chat. And as I, if I look back now, I should have told him he wasn't good enough. <laughs> should have told me, wait, you know, you should wait another five years. But, <laughs> right. but he, you know, I, I could see a special guy in him, and you know, and we, from then on, you know, when you, when a guy talks to you like that, you know. You know, he, he regards you as, as maybe a little different. And that's the one consistent theme, though, that everybody I talked to about you has said, just how approachable you are and how, um, you know, o open you are in terms of helping out uh, others uh, on the tour. Now, it's interesting you say that about Tiger and, you know, the conversations you had. You guys have both gotten on each other a little bit, it seems, over the past couple of years, whether it, and you never know how much the media sort of takes this stuff out of context, but whether it be him saying you could have worked harder coming back from the knee injury or you, you know, criticizing the timing of his first public statements following his indiscretions, to what extent um, has that damaged at all the relationship? I don't think uh, too much, you know, I mean, um you know, people obviously will take uh, quotes that they, they want to use. Um, um, you know, people say I'm the big easy, you know, that probably means that I, I'm easy and I, you know, I don't work. But, um, you know, I think it was taken out of context a little bit. Um, you know, since my knee operation, at least I haven't had to go back for another <laughs> knee surgery, right. you know. So, um, you know, I think I've, I, I did what I needed to do. Um, you know, I think confidence uh, is another part, you know. At times, uh, you know, I lost a little bit of confidence in my game and, you know, felt I get really hard on myself and, you know, and then I kind of shy away a little bit. And I think at that time I could have been in one of those little funks when, when, that, when he made that statement. And, you know, when I said, you know, when he came back or when he made that apology publicly, you know, it was also taking time away from the tour and taking the spotlight away from a, uh, an ex-sponsor of his and an ex-sponsor of the tour. So, 
you know, I think he's very frank and I'm very frank. And I think uh, we've always been like that uh, towards each other right through the history. Um, and it's just, you know, it was a little bit of a shame that, you know, it came out in, in, the, in the media. But, um, you know, we'd say that to each other face to face, which we did. You know, we, I did go to him um, after I basically slated him a little bit. Uh, the week after I saw him at Augusta, I went up to him and we had a, we had a little bit of a chat. Told me what he thought about, you know, my thing, and I told him, you know, so we, we're fine, you know, we, we've been like that for for many years. The year 2000, your year 2000, great year for any golfer, uh, but probably not how 23 By strokes. Many, yeah. How personally challenging was that year for you? Um, you know, I that year I came back from 99 was one of my worst years you know I think 99 and I'm not sure if I made the top 30 you know uh, the tour championship I might have I might not have but 99 wasn't a great year for me and I've really wanted to come back with a bang in 2000 you know it was the after the birth of Samantha and really felt motivated for 2000 and and from that from the first tournament you know it was kind of I finished second to Tiger there when he beat me in a playoff and then you know, later on, you know, so I, I think you said, I, I think I had six finish, second place finishes that year, only won one tournament, I think it was at the International, and most of them to Tiger. And that was the year when he really showed us, you know, just how unbelievable he is. And um, the one at the US Open where I finished second, I just fell in there. You know, I just made the cut, played a really good third round in high winds, I think I shot 68 went from making the cut to finish going to the last round uh, in the last group with Tiger. Already, I don't know how many behind. So I wasn't really in the tournament. And then I didn't play a great fourth round. Uh, subsequently lost by 12 shots, <laughs> but finished second. So it's really just a, a number. I was never really in the tournament. At the, at the Open Championship, you know, I had a great first round and, um, and then didn't quite keep it going and you know he wins by eight I think he beat me by eight shots there so there again not really in a tournament and and people made a big deal about it you know it's only I finished second but it, I was only in the tournament once uh, was at Augusta the rest I was just kind of playing the background role so it was um, you know I didn't think much of it at that time you know I just knew that this guy was really on his game and I needed to get a little bit better one more of these, and I, I promise to move on. The 2004 Masters. Uh, what was it like sitting on that green, unaware of what was really going on with Phil Mickelson? Yeah, I think 2004 was a lot more disappointing than 2000. You know, 2004, you know, I had a, I had a legitimate chance to win all four that year. You know, finishing second to Tiger, uh, excuse me, to Phil in... in at the Masters, uh, playing a really one of my best rounds ever, I thought. You know, in that final day, making two eagles, making really some really clutch putts, making birdies on the back nine, and then Phil coming through and beating me. You know, making that great putt on 18. That really hurt. The U.S. Open really hurt because I was playing great golf at that time, and then, you know, really had played a disastrous final day where my good friend Retief won. And then um, at the Open, I felt I really should have won, you know, and Todd Hamilton just stuck in there, stuck in there. I was waiting for him to go away. <laughs> he wouldn't go away. Um, and I missed quite a few shots that I felt I should have made. And 
lost that playoff. And then at the PGA, you know, I had three putted the last green to be out of the playoff there. So that, that year really hurt me. Uh, as bad as anything I've, I've ever experienced on the golf course. It's interesting speaking about the mentality of world-class athletes. And you at uh, some point make the decision to meet with a Belgium sports psychologist. Uh, how did that benefit you at the time and benefited you since? Well, you know, again, you know, Retief, um, my good friend, uh, I heard that he was working with with this guy and um, he obviously he won the, the 2001 US Open you know after missing short putts and making a lot of mistakes but he he persevered he stayed in there and, and, and won the tournament and basically met Josh um, that same year at, at the Open Championship at Lytham in St. Anne's I had a back problem I was out for five weeks basically after the US Open right up to the to the Open Championship and um, I just wanted to know more about the mental game uh, sure. with, within the game you know I, I wanted to know more because uh, I knew guys were were seeing professional people you know how to f focus and, 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 and really stay focused hundred percent and what did you learn from and he you uh, really I learned a lot you know and he, he really changed my uh, my mindset um, from that day forward, you know, uh, how to really engage into a golf shot, how to really block things out and really um, see only where you want to go. And gave me a lot of exercises and stuff. And we really, we started working together then. Um, and we won a lot of, lot of golf tournaments uh, from, from the end of that year, right through to, right through 05, we won over 28 golf tournaments together. So something definitely clicked, although I didn't, win as many majors as I wanted to. I won only the one major in that period, but I felt uh, he changed a lot of things mentally for me. What's the mindset when you're going into an important putt or a really important drive? We basically, um, I basically programmed myself and um, um, I just did the same thing over and over again. I never changed anything in my approach to the shot. Um, it's getting the smallest target possibly and trying to hit that smallest target, not trying to make the putt, not trying to, um, you know, basically going to where you, where you want to go instead of trying to avoid where you not want to go, you know, and, and, and we just did an exercise and just stuck with it and, you know, it, it really helped. Uh, a 95 article I read said about you, quote, it looks effortless from swing itself to movements that are so fluid that else seems to glide across the fairways with the sleek grace of a lion stalking prey in savannah. That's beautiful. <laughs> How would you describe your swing? I've always swung the club within myself. You know, I've never really tried to be the longest hitter out there and, um, uh, and so forth. I've always tried to just swing within myself and feel um, to try and control and, and play different shots you know I've always loved you know moving the ball uh, around the golf course a little bit and um, my swing itself I've always had that kind of rhythm you know it's always been a long swing um, and at times you know obviously when such a long swing that I have if you have a little technical uh, difficulty somewhere it can become quite awkward uh, and that's why I've had David Ledbetter and, and guys 
you know, looking at uh, some technical stuff in my swing, but my swing as a, as a whole hasn't really changed through all the years. And how beneficial do you think that's been to the game? Well, I think, um, I think lead was an integral part. part. Uh, my dad, obviously, you know, um, had a lot of good people around me for, for a long time. You know, I, since then I've worked with Butch Harmon and now with his son, Claude Harmon. Uh, but still, you know, very similar stuff. It's set up and you know, a couple of little things that I changed, but my, my swing as a whole uh, has really uh, stood the test of time. But also, I've had the ability to turn. You know, you know, I've got a big turn, and I think if you can turn in this game, you'll have a long career. And I think that's also been, I've just been blessed with, uh, with that kind of swing. I understand the first time you asked your now wife, Lisa Loud, she turned you down. Uh, I'll tell you the story. We, um, she actually didn't turn me down. I, I totally made a fool of myself because I. What'd you do? I did. I bought the, the stone in Belgium, you know, the diamond. And oh, this is the actual proposal. This is the proposal, okay. and um, we were. But did she did she turn you down though when you first asked her out? Period. Um, yeah, when I just yeah back in the day, uh, our first date, I had to really beg her to because. We met in, in, in Stellenbosch, uh, where she's from. And um, I was with friends, she was with friends, and uh, you know we got to chat a little bit. Uh, actually got her to the, come to the golf course with her friends. Her friends were golf nuts. She didn't know anything about golf, but I got her to come to the course. Good I could, see, I could see she didn't enjoy it. Oh, no. <laughs> she was like, didn't like it much. And then I wanted to come to, up to Johannesburg. Our next tournament was up in Johannesburg. And, you know, she said no, she didn't want to come up there, so it took a lot of persuasion to get her up there. And then there is the proposal. Yeah, then the proposal, I had the diamond, you know, placed, um, and then I, I wasn't sure how I was going uh, to ask her, and I had the, the ring, and I put the ring down um, in, in one of my pants, and it, it fell out of my pocket onto the floor, onto this hard floor, and she was like, what's that? And there's the ring lying on the floor. <laughs> so I had to do it right there. I went on my knees and said, listen, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I, I, wasn't, I didn't even speak to her, her parents. I, I asked her first, and that's not the way to do it. So when I asked her, she said yes, and then we called her parents immediately, and they all said yeah. So it was a, it was a bit of a screw up. <laughs> <laughs> what was better, the uh, 40th birthday party or the wedding party? Both great. Um, I would say the wedding, obviously, um, special day, 31st of December, in, K in, in, in France Hook, which is the wine region, most beautiful mountains, uh, most beautiful evening, summer's evening, uh, friends, family, everybody there. Uh, my wife looking beautiful, um, and we just had a great time. We had a wedding reception, we had a party, we had a New Year's Eve party, we had, we had a great time really wonderful time. What about the speech uh, Samantha gave at your party? Yeah, Samantha, she, she's quite a, quite a girl. I mean, uh, the 40th, we had like two or three days in the Bahamas, um, a very special time. It was a total surprise to me. Uh, Liesl booked out hotels and, and got a boat for us, all kinds of stuff. We had, we had a great time. And then the last evening, uh, Samantha got on stage there and she made the most beautiful speech uh, 
you know, I know it got recorded and I'll keep that as long as I live, you know. She just, uh, you know, nice to know that your daughter loves you that in that way, you know, it was really special. What did she say? No, she just said, you know, how lucky she thought she was to have us as parents and me as a dad and how special Ben was to her. Just She just poured her heart out and just said how much she, you know, appreciated myself as a father and the time I spent with her and, and all of this. So it was very special. What about your favorite place in the world to go, period? Well, it has to be home, you know, South Africa. You know, I, we live in the States, uh, we've lived in England, uh, but whenever I go to South Africa, it's just the, the smell of the place, uh, you know, the food, uh, the people, it's, you know, you know your home. So yeah, whether you, we've got a house on the beach and we've got a place in the, in the bush, and they're both uh, very different, but it's, you know, what I'm used to. How about your favorite feature of each of those homes? Well, in, 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 uh, in, we're near Cape Town, in, uh, in George, uh, and we've got a house that you literally walk out of the front door, you put your feet in the sand, you know, and uh, the kids love it. It's unbelievable uh, for our summer holidays, which is in December. And then obviously um, up, in, up in the bush, you know, the most, you can hear the quietness. You know, it's so quiet and the stars are this big. You know, you make your fire, you can hear the animals. You know, it's, uh, it's wonderful. What do you recall from the first time you got a place for yourself? I remember bowling myself and Liesl. We were dating back in the day and uh, back in, I think it was 94, 93. No, it was 93. I just had enough money. Uh, I bought a little piece of land uh, where we have our house now in, in uh, George, South Africa, Harold's Bay, and built the house. Uh, I thought for a lot of money, I thought I was going broke, but since then, uh, you know, we've renovated a little bit and uh, that was a wonderful time. Your son Ben has autism. You've become a very prominent voice in recent times speaking out about autism. What was that process like for you going from first recognizing, realizing something may be wrong to identifying it was indeed autism? Yeah, it was a difficult period for us, uh, for the whole family, my wife, myself and uh, Samantha. Um, we knew something was not quite quite right with Ben um, and it took quite a while, you know, the only till after he was two, three years old maybe that we find out, you know, what, what he had, you know, and uh, you know, with all the clever people in the world, you know, we basically found out ourselves through the internet, through, you know, researching, you know, autism, you know, and then asking other people and asking other parents, you know, what the symptoms were like and how their kids were like and, and so forth and really taught ourselves more about what autism was all about even before they diagnosed him uh, with, with autism. So it was a bit of a rough time. Like any other family who, whose kid has autism, the family, the shock that, that comes through and then the, the disappointment and then, you know, you've got to find your, your way forward, you know, and we went through that whole process. And, and what was that emotional roller coaster like for you that I would imagine at some point was just feeling sorry for yourself? Yeah, well, exactly. That's the first, that's the human reaction, I guess. But um, luckily, I, I have a very strong wife uh, and, uh, you know, she took it head on myself um, and uh, just basically started, you know, just crawling you know, before we could walk, you know, now we know so much more about it and we have a, 
uh, a great dream that we want to build. You know, we want to build this uh, center for excellence for, for autistic children uh, right through to the age of 21. Because to the age of 14 now, there's facilities for these kids, but after that, there's not much for them where they can go. So, excuse me. So we want to have a facility where these kids can can stay and even work, you know, and have a uh, uh, the science uh, at the at the facility and the worldwide uh, interaction with with people around the world where we can teach them and we can learn from them and. And if we can get this center built, I think more of them can go around the world um, and uh, really start making it a lot easier for parents and families to, to come to grips with it. And how has the research for autism progressed from when you first identified that he had it and expectations for the short term with regards to the research? Well, I think, um, you know, we're good friends with the, the right uh, family and they, they run Autism Speaks. And they've been um, uh, involved with this uh, with this disease for uh, from over 20 years now, um, and we work with them quite closely, where we uh, uh, fund uh, uh, the science to, to get into to, to see why autism happens in, in families, whether it's uh, 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 in the in the DNA, you know. Um, a lot of us, we believe that it could be in the, uh, in the family history, you know, in the in the family tree. So we're trying to trying to figure that one out. Um, the flu shots has been uh, it's been a very big talking point. Um, I believe there is something to it, but I don't think that is the cause of autism. You know, um, I think these kids are born with with uh, this disability, with this uh, brain malfunction for some reason, and I think it's in the it's in the gene. And I, you know, I'm, this is just me talking, but you know, I think uh, with further, um, you know, uh, science, you know, we'll we'll get to why this happens. And you actually moved from England to Florida because of the fact that there was better treatment there for your son Ben, I believe. How did the idea for the Center of Excellence come about? Well, exactly that. You know, we, you know, obviously know America so well. Um, and um, it, it, we just felt it was so much easier uh, f for Ben's um, um, uh, education uh, was to come to America because it's better here and uh, to raise money and, um, uh, and to build this facility was always going to be easier here than it would be in, in, in Europe and that was the reason why we came here. You know we were talking about your son, what type of therapy is he involved in? We've got a, uh, a couple, a South African couple, uh, who basically, before he went to school even, uh, used to, or taught him, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, you know with, uh, the, the programs that they have for him. Um, she goes to school with him, to the school, the autistic school he goes to. After school, she comes back with him. We, we pick him up from school, bring him back to the house. He has about an hour of you know, chilling out and then, you know, back, you know, to the drawing board and see, um, she's with him for another two hours after that. So there's a, he's got a very long day. Um, and these people are from South Africa. They were with us in England and we moved them to the U.S. Um, for these, for these purposes. That's it for my chat with Ernie Els. To hear more from our conversation, including his take on traveling the world, 
Go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again for listening.